It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. What a great pleasure it is to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And over the journey, we've spoken to many people who have been involved in the media in sport in Australia. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, one of the greats of media in this country, Kenny Callender. I'm delighted to have a good mate of his, a man who was a partner of his for so many years and one of the iconic voices in this country is my guest today, John Tapp. Welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. Ken called me after having recorded the interview with you. He said, it's a great show. He said, Pete is a terrific host and you should do it when you possibly can. Well, I loved every bit of talking to him and I'm going to love every bit of talking to you because I want to relive your story. I must say, haven't seen you for a while, but you look really well. Well, thank you. That's the nicest compliment you could have paid me because I am getting a bit long in the tooth. I turned 77 last October. I don't know how you're supposed to feel at 77, but I feel pretty good. Uh, I've been fortunate, Pete, that uh, I was able to kick cigarettes a long long time ago you and me both that's yes. the smartest thing I've ever done yeah I agree and uh, I try to keep the weight off and walk a lot I don't try to break any records and I'd be very long odds in the stall gift <laughs> but at, at 77 walking is enough but you were very active up until a few years ago because a lot of people may not have known, they, they know your voice and they know your involvement with thoroughbreds but you were heavily involved in the harness racing industry for a long time more heavily than I ever intended to be, actually. Uh, I've been hobby training them for over 30 years, one or two horses at a time, but I always felt as though I wasn't giving horse training my best shot, and I wanted to really apply myself to it uh, for a specified length of time to see if I could uh, promote any success. And, you know, at one stage, about... Eight, 18 years ago, I had 24 horses in work. Wow. Far more than I ever intended. It's just the way it happened. Uh, I was fortunate to have the support of some wonderful owners and a lot of friends who enjoyed uh, being in ownership syndicates. Next thing, I've got 24 horses around me and, and quite a number of staff, but that didn't last long. I couldn't handle that at all. I quickly whittled that back to 10 or 12 and I, I remained at that number uh, for quite a long time. I was fortunate uh, to have a f half a dozen really nice horses, uh, one in particular, a horse called Chariot King, who won a total of 30 races, mm. uh, and he won a couple of group ones, by far and away the best horse I ever trained, 
he was a mate, uh, a lovely horse with exquisite manners and just a delight to be around him. Now, the one thing that Kenny Callender probably would have told you is that this program, under my stewardship, jumps from the start to the beginning to the end and then back again <laughs> and all over the place. Let's go back a little bit. When yeah. you first decided that Ken Howard had such an impression on you and you yeah. wanted to call races, mm. everybody has a way of finding out whether they can learn to identify colours. Is the story about the icy pole sticks true with you? Oh, absolutely. You call them icy pole sticks. There was a product called Paddle Pops. I don't know if they still exist. I think they do. But they are technically an icy pole stick. Yeah. So you're half right. And people tended to eat them and throw the sticks away. And the streets of Cogra and most other Sydney suburbs were littered with them. So it didn't take me long to gather up a clutch of paddle pop sticks. And with the fertile imagination of a 10-year-old, I'd get myself into the backyard shed where people tend to put those tiny little tins of paint. Uh, all of us will buy that little tiny tin of paint to yeah. patch up a scratch on something. And I was able to get myself reds and yellows and blues and blacks and whites. And I started to paint the paddle pop sticks with one of those tiny little brushes trying to uh, emulate the actual colours of the great horses of that era. Carioca, red paddle pop stick with a white sash and a dark blue tip on one end to represent the cap. Uh, and I did this with checks and stripes and all sorts of patterns and designs. And then I'd grade them, Peter. I'd have a maiden handicap, a novice, and encourage. Uh, then I'd get up to the group ones. Uh, although that term wasn't used in that era. Mm. Uh, but I had a Chipping Norton Stakes and uh, an Epsom and a Doncaster and all the famous races. And I would leap into the stormwater channel uh, close to home at Cogra, where there was an ever-present current of water two inches deep, travelling at a pretty good rate. And it went for miles through Carlton and Cogra and Rockdale and beyond. So I had a big racetrack and I could throw a clutch of paddle pop sticks into the current of water and walk beside them for a long distance, calling them as though they were real racehorses. If one of them got snagged on a pebble, that'd be a severe check. <laughs> that, that horse would lose four lengths, <laughs> you know. And this is how, uh, this is how I learned to identify colours and put a name to them. You know, last 15 months ago, I took my daughter and her partner for a drive around that area. She'd heard me talk about the paddle pop sticks a thousand times and the stormwater channel that had been my racetrack. And I actually took her to the very spot where I used to leap into the stormwater channel. It's wow. still there. It is unchanged. It could have been 1955. Mm. And I felt very quite emotional, really. A lot of people have grandstands named after them or statues. Maybe we could have the John Tapp stormwater drain. <laughs> what a good idea. 
What a good idea. Uh, when we come back, Tappy, we'll find out where the first big break came for you in your wonderful career. What a pleasure and an honour it is to have John Tapp as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More with Tappy coming up after the break. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. As I said, it is an honour to have John Tapp as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. So Tappy, after the paddle pop sticks, you realised you could do it, but then there's a big difference between calling paddle pop sticks in a stormwater drain and actually being at the race course and doing it. Where did the first big break come for you? Well, I'd been practising in a spare box at Rose Hill Racecourse for a long time, maybe two or three years, and Rose Hill meetings only because that was the only Sydney track uh, at which a spare broadcast box was available. I did it all the correct way. I contacted the Sydney Turf Club, told them what I wanted to do, got permission to use the box. Uh, I borrowed a tape recorder from a good friend I borrowed a pair of binoculars from another good friend and I would get myself to the Rose Hill meetings. I had a mate, uh, the late Len McCabe, who was a, a dear and lifelong friend who would accompany me. He was my assistant and uh, I'd get myself set, learn the colours and I think it was the 22nd of May 1965, the very first time I tried. Well, no, it was earlier than that. 63. The first race, capacity field, 18 runners, I think, two-year-old fillies, learned them parrot fashion, and I was confident by the time they were ready to jump that I could handle this uh, because I knew the colours and I could put a name to them instantly, so I thought. Starter hit the button. They bounded out of the gate in a perfect line and I just panicked. It was a mass of colour. Nothing made any sense. Mm. Race two, same thing. Race three, almost as bad. I couldn't wait for the next meeting uh, in the hope that I'd derive benefit from the first experience. I took forever. Before I had any sort of fluency, any sort of flow or any sort of confidence. In the back of your mind at that stage, was the dream then starting to look as though it was unreal? The dream was probably looking like the impossible dream at that stage. I was really struggling. Did that break your heart, given the fact that your heart had been set on doing this for a yeah, long time? I was very sad that I couldn't handle it. Mm. But I, I just kept chipping away Rose Hill meetings only. There was a, a gap where they didn't race at Rose Hill for six weeks. And I don't know why. That's, uh, that's very, very unusual. It's the longest six weeks of my life. I couldn't find another box at any other track. So I waited six weeks. I think I was outside the gate two hours before the first <laughs> at the next uh, Rose Hill meeting. The months wore on and the Rose Hill meetings ticked by and I could feel it finally starting to click. So I spent another six or eight months just chipping away, getting better, improving, 
And when I felt I had something to offer, I needed to find an introduction to a man called Cliff Carey, who was the sporting editor of this vast racing network that I was telling you about in that era. He was the icon among studio coordinators. I know we've had some some great ones since with John Vertican right up there at the top of the tree, Mm. but Cliff Carey back then in the early 1960s was the uncrowned king and his tips and his form assessments were waited on by most punters around Australia every Saturday morning. He was a great judge of form. When was your first actual broadcast on air of a race? Well, I did an audition call first up. I'll give you the date. The 16th of December, 1964. A Canterbury meeting on a Wednesday. uh, One week after the New South Wales TAB commenced operations. The tab kicked off on the 9th of December of that year on two race meetings, Canterbury and Menangle Trots. So had I been a week earlier, my entry into the game would have started on the same day as the TAB. Uh, Cliff said to me on the phone on the Wednesday morning, get yourself to Canterbury Racecourse introduce yourself to Ken Howard. I'll tell him you'll be coming out there. I want you to do one race. He said, let Ken select uh, the race that we need. He'll know the best one for you. And he said, I'll be listening back at the studio. I wish he hadn't said that. (laughs) (laughs) That was a terrifying prospect. So Ken, who I've got to say, Pete, all these years on, and Ken passed away in 1976, and that'll surprise a lot of people. Mm. He wasn't the friendliest bloke in the world. Um, I mean, he wasn't unfriendly either, but uh, he didn't. Um, he wasn't effusive in his conversation. And some days it was clearly obvious that he, he really wanted to be left alone. And I soon learned to read the difference. Uh, but this particular day, brief little chat, I kept away from him. He said, you can do race six. It's a fillies and mares race, eight runners, that'll be perfect for you. Uh, This is early in the day, of course. So I stayed right out of his way for the rest of the day. And by the time race six rolled around and I stepped back into the broadcasting box, I was a bundle of nerves. What did he say to you after the race? First of all, were you happy with it? No. No. Why? Oh, it was hesitant. It was tentative. Uh, There was no confidence there was very little fluency. Uh, it was terrible. Mm. And I look back on it now and I, I wonder how I ever got a job off it. He didn't say much. Uh, Ken didn't use Christian names very often. He called most blokes boss, sport or champ. And he called most females sweetie. He probably wouldn't even get away with it. In this, Not today. In no. this day and age. <laughs> So I think he said something like, that was okay, boss. See you later. That's all. They must have heard something in that first call because it was the start of what was one of Australia's most decorated careers in sports broadcasting. When did you feel comfortable behind the binoculars? How long after that first race did you feel as though I can do this and I can do it within my means? Once that audition was over... 
I went straight back to my practising with the tape recorder at Rose Hill because Cliff gave me that famous Hollywood line, don't ring us, we'll ring you, mm. I'll be in touch. So I thought I'd better just get back to practice and make sure I'm ready if he does ring. I might add that I bombarded him with letters and phone calls. People were still writing letters in that era. Can you believe it? Yeah. And uh, one day I got a telegram. When I tell this story to younger generations now, the word telegram throws them. I just explained that it's a hand-delivered email. That's really all it was. But there was a knock on the door. Uh, the bloke from the post office handed me a telegram, uh, which I nervously opened. Please ring me urgently, Cliff Carey. Now, at the time, I was um, a junior clerk with the main roads department, married with two little kids at the time, later to be three. I didn't have a phone on. I could not afford a landline telephone. I had to walk two or three hundred metres to the nearest phone box. My heart was pounding like a bass drum. What can it be? What does he want? Is he, is he going to send me to a race meeting? I get to the old red phone box on the corner and there was a rather large lady on the phone. I could hear her quite clearly through the glass door talking to her sister. I thought I'd better give her 10, 10 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes out of sheer courtesy before I bang on the glass. Eventually I did tap on the glass, had her uh, sister hold on. She opened the door slightly. I said, I've got to have the phone. It's a matter of urgency. And she took the bait and she let me into the phone box. Cliff said, can you be at Wyong Races tomorrow? 2GB experimented with provincial uh, race broadcasts only for a short time. Didn't last long at all. Uh, but they, they did maybe 10 or 12 meetings. This was the first of them. Ken Howard couldn't make it. He had a a one-day medical procedure to undertake, and I got the job. It's the old story. I was at the front gate at Wyong Racecourse two hours before the first race. Mm. Well, the journey had just begun at that stage. When we come back on the other side of the break, we'll talk about taking that step to becoming one of Australia's most iconic broadcasters, one of the most famous voices in the land. And we'll do that with John Tapp on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat with the great John Tapp as much as I am on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Tappy, we've talked about the early steps, but eventually the time would come where you would be the number one man. How did that all come about? Ken announced his retirement. Uh, obviously, I had some prior knowledge that he was close to making the announcement. He made that announcement at a Saturday meeting at Rose Hill in the middle of of 1973 it was a dramatic moment 
because it was truly the end of a great era. It was the termination of a career of a true pioneer of Australian race broadcasting and a humbling moment for me because this man had been my God and I had the privilege to step into his shoes. And what a gigantic pair of shoes they were. They were a size 27. Did that weigh heavily on your shoulders? Did you feel as though in some ways, whilst you were delighted to take the job, that you were on a kick up the backside to nothing because this man had been revered by you and so many millions of others at the time? Yeah. Was that the way you felt? Peter, he was... People, it's hard for people to understand nowadays how famous this man was. Mm. His voice was the, I believe, the, the, the nucleus of his fame. Um, his voice was known in every pub and every club, every SP betting shop, every interstate betting ring, every network radio station. They knew it was Ken Howard. I had cause to walk down the street with him one day. Uh, we had to go from 2GB and Phillips Street in those days uh, to a, a luncheon, uh, a 10-minute walk away, and people were yelling out at him from one side of the road to the other. Hey, Ken! I could hear them say, that's Ken Howard, because he was on Channel 9. He, he was seen often on Channel 9 on the famous Clarence the Clocker program, and Saturday Night News and other programs, World of Sport on a Sunday, uh, doing the racing replays. He was a very, very famous person. I'm about to take over from this famous person. It's a bit intimidating. I'll bet it was. But eventually, to a degree, you would have the same thing happen to you because there's not one person listening to this, I would think, that wouldn't know that it was you who were speaking, even if they hadn't heard the introduction to this program. Your voice has just become a soundtrack for a lot of what's happened in racing. Where did you get the accuracy and the passion that was displayed over your great career? Where did you get it to go to another level? Because it appeared as though you got better as you went on. Pete, I think the passion was there from the first day I jumped into the Stormwater Channel. Mm. I always had the passion. I still have it. Um, there's something about the outside of a horse that's good for the inside of a man. Uh, something that I think I've lived by for 50 years. But the accuracy factor was a result of, of my observing something that was happening to Ken Howard late in his career. Ken was a showman first and foremost. He was a great race caller, but he was a showman number one. As I said earlier, he could make a Gosford maiden sound like a, a group one at Royal Randwick. Ken would have them coming home at 100 miles an hour when it was obvious they were struggling or, or very gradually picking up the leaders. But Channel 9 were doing more and more by way of replays at that time. And people suddenly started to relate what they were seeing on World of Sport on Sunday with what they'd heard on radio the day before. It wasn't quite the same. And I could tell this was going to be the beginning of the end for Ken Howard. Uh, 
he, he couldn't change, he wouldn't change. It was too late. He'd been doing it that way for many, many years. His style had taken him to legendary status, so he wasn't going to change. But I could see that I had to be different. And Ian Craig and I discussed this many times very early in our careers. It's got to be accuracy number one. Mm. Uh, possibly logic number two. Try not to make silly statements. And colour third. There has to be colour. I mean, it's the greatest show on earth. And you've got to bring that into people's lounge rooms. But accuracy has to come first once television took hold. And that was my next question about television taking hold because you talked about the replays that would go on. That was the first step with Ken getting towards the end of his career. But you were doing races on live television all the time. So you had to be accurate. Yeah. Otherwise, it was just not going to translate to the medium. And that was something that you always were. I don't think I ever heard you stumble calling a race. Oh, well, I did. I don't think I ever heard it. <laughs> I did. You, you I just did. seemed so... It was almost like you're reading from a script, and I say this as the biggest compliment that I could pay, that it sounded like you were in control of everything that was going on the minute they jumped out of that, those starting gates. Yeah, well, Peter, it's lovely of you to say that, and I, I take it as a, as a wonderful compliment. That wasn't always the case, obviously. Uh, I mean, race callers get into trouble yes. often. Uh, you know, a set of colours will be suddenly obscured, uh, you just can't quite pick up the horse in question. And there's another point. Panic is forbidden. That feeling of, of being gripped by panic when you can't see a horse, and it might be the favourite. You know, everybody wants to know where the favourite is. You can't see him up front. You can't see him out the back. It might be him, but I, I can't risk it. And that's where panic takes hold, and you've got to learn to handle the panic factor. What's what's the one you're most proud of? Probably one of Kingston Towns. Uh, I just love the horse. It was a privilege and a very exciting thing to call him in his races. I think I called 19 of his 30 wins. I can still see him winning the Sydney Cup as a three-year-old, going three-quarter pace, three lengths in front of the horse who'd won the Sydney Cup the year before double century um, his win in the AJC Derby uh, there was a horse of great character great appearance great presence great action great acceleration you talk about ticking every box Kingston Town I'd be excited on Saturday morning waiting to get there just to try and convey my passion for him it took a hell of a lot for Winks to depose Kingston Town as my all-time favourite. Mm. But I think she's better. We'll talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break. Were you like the rest of us when Kingston Town was beaten by Gurners Lane in the Melbourne Cup? Did you feel a bit heartbroken for the great horse? Shattered. Yeah. Shattered. There's little doubt he should have won. Yeah. I've never blamed Malcolm Johnston entirely for maybe being a little hasty in that Melbourne Cup because that's the way Tommy Smith like them to be ridden. Tommy Smith didn't like giving starts. You know, his jockeys were always given the same message. Be in the first three or four. 
make sure you're there when the whips are cracking. And jockeys became brainwashed. I'm sure that had something to do with Malcolm's urgency on Kingston Town. Mm. Coupled with a freak run gained by Gurners Lane and a freak ride by his jockey, Mick Dittman. Who got time for, I think he knocked down Port Carling Port at about Carling. the 200 metres and yep. took into victory that day. Yeah. Did you ever get to call the Melbourne Cup? Under the strangest of circumstances, I did three. The first two, you'll remember well. 74, 75, mm. think bigs two years. Now, there were a, a small number of radio stations in Sydney and on the New South Wales network who had no network affiliations. They had no way of taking a split of the Melbourne Cup of, of those years, 74, 75. They all uh, contacted 2GB Macquarie seeking a split of the Melbourne Cup call. Now, to be sending Ken Howard out to too many different avenues was fraught with danger. So they decided to just form a separate tiny little network of five or six stations. And they sent me down to call the Melbourne Cup to that tiny little network. I had thoughts at the time that no one will hear this. But the strangest thing happened. My eldest son, David, was still at school. He knew that one of the stations my call uh, would be heard on was 2SM in Sydney. His school teacher in the period pertaining to Melbourne Cup starting time brought a transistor radio into the classroom and said to these students, I'm going to let you listen to the Melbourne Cup from a cultural viewpoint. This is an iconic sporting event in our country. You should be allowed to hear it. What station do I get it on? Said the teacher. My son David said, 2SM. <laughs> this is true. So my elder boy David, we still talk about it, heard my call of Think Big's second Melbourne Cup win on 2SM in Sydney. Mm. But the following year, same, same deal. I think I'm going to Melbourne for a little group of stations independent of the main network. I got a message at the hotel early on the Tuesday morning that Channel 9 were going to telecast that Melbourne Cup. It was an 11th hour decision and that they'd be taking my call. Vanderham. Oh, I'll say no more. How did you go with it? Because oh, it, terrible. They should never. Well, had it been any other race apart from the Melbourne Cup, mm. it wouldn't have been. It right. would have been off. Absolutely yeah. no shadow of doubt. It was the most bizarre, eerie day I have ever spent in a broadcasting box. Well, I was standing as a young fellow. I was standing in front of the broadcasting boxes that day when that mm. cup was run. Mm. You could not tell one no. from the other. Oh, I was awful. Ken Howard used to say on a wet day that jockeys' mothers wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that applied to Vanderham, but I struggled through. There was something about his action that helped me to identify him. He had a lot of action in front. Mm. He was a buff-headed sort of a horse, and I, his colours were uh, grey and green from memory, and they were just all black, you know. Most of the horses in the race were all black, uh, but... Again, the saddlecloth number. I thought I'd better just do a double check 
I think it was number nine. Mm. And was I pleased to see the nine on the saddle cloth, Van der Hum. John, you've been so synonymous with Sydney racing. Did it complete something when you were able to call the Melbourne Cup because of the status of the race in this country and it now around the world? Absolutely. I, I guess there, there was a, a fair bit of unfinished business, you know, when I, when I retired 20 years ago now. Uh, I never got to call a night race in Sydney. That would have been an exciting thing. I never got to call a harness race on this new iconic Menangle track. Uh, that would have been great fun. Uh, but you can't do everything. No, you can't. And you did pretty close to everything. And when we come back on the other side of the break in our final break, we'll talk about the way life has been for you and other things apart from racing that have uh, been a part of your life in recent years. John Tapp is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, our final segment with Tappy coming up after the break. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Our final segment with the great John Tapp and we've only scratched the surface, Tappy. It'd take a lot more than an hour to go through the things that you did in your great broadcasting career. You talked about Ken's farewell. What was yours like? It was anticlimactic. My last race call occurred at Rose Hill, the track where I'd learned my craft with a tape recorder, uh, on the f- horse's birthday, 1st of August, 1998. Um, the Sydney Turf Club paid me a great honour uh, right through the day with all sorts of uh, official presentations and what have you. I was deeply touched. But it, was, it wasn't meant to be my last call. That had been arranged for the following Thursday at Coffs Harbour, the Coffs Harbour Cup, which had been the domain of Ken Howard and one of the very last things Ken ever said to me uh, before he drifted off into retirement at Nambucca Heads was, one request, boss, look after Coffs. And it rang in my ears for many, many years. And I thought, in, in memory of Ken, in memory of my hero, I really should call my last race at Coffs Harbour on Cup Day. So that was the plan. Didn't happen. Why? Uh, because the rain started on the north coast on Monday or Tuesday, <laughs> and it persisted right through until Cup morning where it was torrential. The races were called off at 7 o'clock on the Thursday morning. So it, it, it was a bit strange. It felt a little, a little odd. Did you feel as though something had been taken away from yeah, you? Yeah, I did. I did because I was fired right up for that one. Yeah. I couldn't wait to get my teeth around the Coffs Harbour Cup of 1998. But we moved the party to the Coffs Harbour Ex-Services Club. We took over the entire auditorium. They even held the fashions in the field at the club. We had a terrific day. It was a hell of a party. John Russell was there. 
Well, then it would have been a very good party. <laughs> Alan Thomas was there. Yes. And the local caller, Jeff Heath, uh, a lovely fellow. Mm. And we got our heads together and decided to do a four-part phantom call of the Coffs Harbour Cup. And I got to call the last 300 metres or so. And I gave it to a horse called Stop Flirting, which was trained by a former jockey, Neil Campton, mm. whose name will ring a bell with a lot of racing people. Um, that was my last call. And to put the icing on the cake, the late Jim Browning, father of Matt Browning, so well known on Sky Racing over yep. the years, gave me the Gold Cup. I have the 1998 Coffs Harbour Cup on my shelf at home. How fantastic. And I'm very proud of it, and the memories flood back every time I look at it. Although I seem to recall just a few weeks ago that you called a race that Winks and Farlap and Carbine and a few others were in. That was a News Corp initiative, and my good friend Ray Thomas, a racing writer extraordinaire, um, rang me one day at home. He said, look, we're planning this... Uh, mythical race of champions using all the greats of Australian racing history and we need a caller. I didn't quite know how to accept uh, the offer, whether they wanted somebody familiar with Carbine. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you knew his galloping action, John. Uh, exactly. <laughs> anyway, it all happened. Uh, I went into the News Corp building where they have their own studio. We had a few cracks at it uh, because it's all animated. And they were all over the place. Uh, but I think it came together uh, satisfactorily. And uh, we did have a lot of fun with it. Do you miss calling? I did for a while, Peter. I did for a while, you know, probably for 12 months. After I finished, I'd get myself in front of the television set to watch the slipper. Uh, and I'd get a bit of a tingle up the spine and maybe wished fleetingly that I could still be there. But you've got to dismiss those thoughts. A decision is made, move on. Mm. And life goes on, and it involves so many different facets apart from racing. One thing that has been dear to your heart and to your wife Anne's heart is raising money for a cure for diabetes because it's touched you personally. I have a diabetic son, Peter, Paul, who is coming up 53 years of age now. He contracted diabetes at age eight. He's been insulin dependent since the age of eight. Uh, his dedication uh, to his problems have, have been unwavering. He's done everything by the book and he d really didn't deserve the fate uh, that overtook him about 12 years ago when he lost his eyesight. For the last 12, close to 13 years now, he's been totally blind. Uh, both retinas detached. Uh, they were able to control it with laser for quite a long time, but eventually his sight slipped away. His transition into his new life uh, was quite amazing to, to watch and to observe. His attitude from the, the outset has been far better than I would ever have mustered given the same circumstances. I'm extremely proud of the way he's handled uh, a plight of this magnitude. He's, he's jovial, he's cheerful. I see him often. 
loves a joke, uh, extremely fond of the opposite sex. And if ever he, that topic. And if ever he hears uh, a female voice in the vicinity when I take him for a cup of coffee, he uses his stock expression, describe her to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so you and Anne have devoted a lot of time and energy into raising money for the Diabetes Foundation. Di- Diabetes Australia, the Variety Club of Australia, yeah. who look after underprivileged children all over the world, a magnificent charity organisation, Bear Cottage and several others. I can't take the accolades um, in all conscience, Peter, because Anne is the mainstay of our operation when it comes to fundraising. She does all of the hard work behind the scenes and she's become very proficient at the art. Uh, I just turn up on the night. Uh, I might act as MC and I take all the accolades, but she really deserves them. Well, I'm sure you're selling yourself short there, and she's actually got herself another project at the moment. Yes, her first grandchild, my fourth, but in her case, um, it's grandchild number one, darling little girl turning one as we speak, uh, with a celebration over the weekend. Tappy, there's so much we haven't been able to touch on. I wish we had more time. But my final question to you is, if you could turn back the clock to that time when you walked into the box with Ken Howard and he stood beside you, take it forward to you now. If you're standing in a broadcast box somewhere and some young, wide-eyed caller comes in and wants to do what you did for all of those years, Mm. what would be the piece of advice that you would give him or her? Before their call or after? Both. Yeah. Before, I would try not to be too intrusive uh, because I'd be extremely cognizant of their uh, their nerves and their apprehension. So I wouldn't say too much before other than a few words of encouragement. After, you've only got to look at their wide-eyed look these kids uh, Graham McNeese and I had the honour to talk to a lot of them at the most recent Sky Academy you can't help but be overtaken by their enthusiasm and their, ze- their zeal uh, their passion their desire their ambition it's, it's, it's overpowering mm. Pete you just wish every one of them could be a star that's what I wish for them, each and every one of them. Well, you had some very kind words for a young wide-eyed caller back before the 1983 Melbourne Cup. A young fellow was going out to call his one and only Melbourne Cup that day. And that was me, and you wished me well that day, and I've never forgotten it. You're an icon, you're a legend, and it's been an honour to sit down with you. Pete, the honour has been mine, and the pleasure has been immeasurable. Thanks for having me. John Tapp, a very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life, a Tobin Brothers funeral celebrating lives, and we'll be back with another great of Australian sport, same time next week. See you then. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 finals. all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.